In just a few minutes, we'll be looking at the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 3. 1 Timothy, chapter 3, and we're going to focus on verses 1 through 7 uh, this morning. We're also going to look at those uh, verses next week as well, but uh, uh, it's okay to look at look at two weeks in a row. Um, so if you want to find your way there using uh, your Bible or the Bible app, um, it's, it's in the Bible app as well as on our website, that sort of thing. So 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. This morning we're going to attempt to tackle a question that plagues many people, um, including the church. And that is this question, who's in charge? Who's in charge? And if, if we were to ask a, kind of the average person who is in charge of the church, no doubt we would get a plethora of different answers of who people think are in charge of a church. And perhaps some would answer, well, the pastor's in charge of the church. Um, possibly due to our democratic government, they would, they would have that answer. People would impose uh, that model to the church, which often happens, and they think the church should be uh, run by the democratic governmental model. And so under that model, the, the pastor is like the president, and if they have elders and deacons, they are like members of Congress, and the members of the church, they would be like the, the voting public. And so if, if the people that are running the church, uh, the president, the pastor, uh, they, don't, they don't like that, and he's not doing a good job, they get to, uh, or if he's doing a good job, they get to stay in office. If he's not doing a good job, if the voters are unhappy, they don't like the performance, then they can just vote him out. And they say, well, he's done. And we may find that, that comical when they say, well, that's, that's not how it happens in the church. But unfortunately, that is exactly how it often happens in the church. This makes the, the God-appointed leaders of the church force the power to the people in the church to make them happy rather than allowing them to have their will bent to the will of God and glorify God. Even the great pastor theologian Jonathan Edwards was voted out as the pastor of his church. After all, this is America, right? And that's just how we do it in America. But what if how we did it was not biblical? What if how we did it was not honoring to God? What if how we did it didn't glorify God? Are we willing to change? Are we willing to have our beliefs more lined up with God's Word? Are we willing to look into the Word of God and say, okay, we need to line up with what we read in Scripture? Let me be clear that there are different views among Christians regarding church polity or what we would call church governance. Each has some biblical supports. For example, we have the Episcopal church model, which is a hierarchical model of church government. So there is one leader at the top, and if we were Roman Catholic, that man at the top would, of course, be the Pope. And all Popes are claimed to be in line of direct secession from the Apostles. In Orthodox churches, the, the Metropolitan is the head. In Anglican churches, the Archbishop of Canterbury is the head. So under this main leader are other leaders. They are uh, Archbishops and Bishops and Cardinals and so on and so forth. And, and all these lesser leaders have charge over their specific regions or cities, and so the priest is in charge of a local congregation. This type of church government seems to have come on the scene in the middle of the 2nd century, 
when, when we see this kind of church government taking place. There's also what is known as the Presbyterian form of church government. It's not as hierarchical as the Episcopal form, but there are still tiers of authority. And so the local church is governed by presbyters or elders, and they are called the session, and they are led by the pastor, and the pastor is chosen and called by the congregation. And the churches are all part of a synod or a presbytery, and there's this regional group of elders that are, that are all from different churches. And above the presbytery is the general assembly, which has more broad jurisdiction over the entire denomination. Finally, you have what I'm going to call the congregational independent governance model. And this stresses the autonomy of the local church. And they're not subject to any outside authority. Now, in Southern Baptist churches, that's what we are, we're a Southern Baptist church, you will have a joining together in a larger association or conventions, and um, we are asked to adhere to specific doctrines and practices of the larger convention. If we say, well, we're not going to hold to those doctrines and those practices, then what can happen uh, to a Southern Baptist church is what is called disaffiliation. And so you say, well, we're not going to do this anymore. We're, we're, we want to go our own way. We don't care about your doctrine anymore. And then uh, the, the, uh, what's over you, as uh, for, for our case, would be the Illinois Baptist, they could disaffiliate us. So we could no longer technically call ourselves Southern Baptists at that point. Now bring this up because some people think that that um, having elders or or this sort of thing it's not Baptist, which is just not the case. In fact, that's why that's why I have this book down there. Everybody can can get a book uh, called Understanding Church Leadership. And uh, so one, let's take one per couple. If you are a couple, please only take one and share it. And, you know, we have, you know, what are the deacons? What do deacons do? Who are the elders? What do elders do? How do elders relate to the staff and the deacons and the pastor? And how do the elders relate to the congregation? And who are the members? And we have some appendixes in the back and the conclusion and the notes and all kinds of stuff. And this little book is only 50-some pages long, so it's not super long. It's easy to read. You say, well, why do you recommend? Well, because this is from a Southern Baptist church. So we have a Southern Baptist church giving us this book that has elders in the church. So we have, we, we have this idea of, well, well, that's not a Southern Baptist thing. That shouldn't be our question. Our question should be, is it a biblical thing? Not is it Southern Baptist, but is it biblical? And that's why I bring this up. Many congregational churches are elder-led congregationalists. There are numerous Baptist churches that are elder-led. Some even elder ruled. Some are congregationally ruled to the point that everything that happens from the color of the carpet has to be moved on in a church business meeting. And that's primarily because no one's in charge. As I've stated, we are Southern Baptists, or if you don't like calling us Southern Baptists, you could call us Great Commission Baptists because that was approved a few years back by the Southern Baptist Convention. This means... Our church is autonomous. There's no outside authority over us. There's no one that comes in and says, this is how you have to do things. And so, who's in charge of First Baptist Church? That's the question, right? If you figure it out, let me know. And that may sound comical, and it may sound funny, and it was meant to sound comical and funny, 
But the word lead is used eight times in our church constitution, most of, most of which is a reference to a paid staff worship leader, which we currently do not have. We do have a reference to church leadership, but it's not defined anywhere in our constitution. Now, some might say, well, the deacons are in charge of the church. Once again, let me read to you from our constitution as I quote. Basically, the deacons are to assist the pastor and church in optimizing the spiritual content and harmonious fellowship of the congregation. Their duties shall be in accordance with the meaning of the word deacon. So we've got to define that word, which we'll do in a couple weeks. And the practice of the New Testament, that deacons are to be servants of the church, they will in no sense constitute a board to direct or control the activities of the church. So, by our own constitution, they're not in charge. You say, well, Pastor, why are you bringing all of this up? Well, because I would assume that we are a Southern Baptist church, and I would make the assumption that we want to be biblical in everything that we do, because if we don't, I don't know why I preach from the Bible. So I'm just kind of making that assumption that we want that you and I, and everybody listening to this, wants to follow what Scripture teaches. Amen. That's the assumption I'm making. And here's what I've discovered in over 25 years of ministry. If no one is in charge, one of two things will happen. Someone who is not given authority will assume authority. Or secondly, since no one is in charge, everyone is in charge. And if everyone is in charge, guess what? No one is in charge. So let's be concerned with what the Bible says. What does scripture teach us? And so if you are willing and able, I would ask that you please stand out of respect for God's word this morning as we look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, actually I'm in the wrong verse, sorry. I was like, whoa, that's not where I want to be. I apologize. See, I even make mistakes. That's the first mistake I've made. First Timothy 3, 1 through 7. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Let's pray. Father, take this word this morning. Take what's said and penetrate our hearts. Lord, I don't want to preach my sermon. Lord, I don't want to preach my opinion. Lord, I don't want to preach what, what ears may want to hear. I want to preach what you have commanded me to preach. I want to preach your word this morning, that it would touch hearts and penetrate lives this morning. And Lord, if we are confronted with your word this morning, and if our views don't line up with that, God, I pray that our views would change. We wouldn't try to change God's word. Speak to us. 
For your saints are listening. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So here's a sermon in a sentence. Christ implements headship over his church through church-recognized elders who shepherd the flock of God. I want to prove that by using three points. My goal is to, here's the sentence. I've done this the last several weeks. Here's what we're going to talk about, and then we're going to prove it. So Christ implements headship over his church through church-recognized elders who shepherd the flock. Does this what is this what the Bible teaches us? So first, let's get this out of the way right away. Christ is the head of his church. Christ is the head of his church. Let's just get that straight right now. All of the different forms of church governance recognize that Christ is the head of his church. Where we see differences come up is, is how is that headship implemented into the church? With that being said, we shouldn't just gloss over the fact that Christ is the head of the church because there are practical ramifications to his headship and his authority over the church. This means the church, that this church, that First Baptist Church, that any church, is not my church and it's not your church. And I know it's easy to say conversationally, right? It's easy for us to say that it's my church. We, we say that in conversation. Uh, come to my church. Or I want to invite you to my church. We just say that. We probably don't mean anything about it, but it's really not our church, right? Or even these big-name pastors. Sometimes we call it their church. Hey, did you go to Matt Chandler's church? Or did you go to J.D. Greer's church instead of the Village Church or the Summit Church? And we go on and on with big-name pastors. We call it their church, even though it's not their church. It can be easy to call a church by the pastor's name. It doesn't make it right, but it's easy to do. The pastor doesn't own the church. I doubt there's a whole lot of people that say, Hey, <clears throat> did you go to Josh Monda's church? I, I just don't, I don't picture that happening. Because people go, well, who's that? But, and he'd be like, some weirdo. But anyway, um, <clears throat> it's not my church. It's Christ's church. The church is under Christ's headship. And just like it's not my church, guess what? It's not your church. If you are a member here, I'm so glad to hear that. You are a member, and I'm so thankful for that. And if you've been a member here for a long time, I am so glad and grateful that you've stuck it out in the church through thick and thin. If you give to the church and you support the ministries and and, 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 and you want to make sure that the church flourishes through giving of gifts and tithes. And that make sure that all that we do and are able to accomplish uh, in our church to move forward through giving. I'm thankful and I'm so glad that you give. If you've served here faithfully for many years, thank you for your dedicated service to the church. That makes me joyful. However, it's still not your church. You don't know. It. It's Christ's church. Because Christ is the head of his body. Christ purchased the church by his blood. I pray that we are all committed to this church and that we serve in it and that we give and support it. But even if we do all of that, it doesn't matter how much we do. It doesn't matter how much we give. The church will never belong to us. We must understand and live our lives knowing 
The church belongs to Jesus Christ and He is the head of His body. He's the head of the body. He's the King of His people. He's the Redeemer of souls. He's the one that washes the church in His blood. He is the one who died on the cross, rose again to redeem a people of His own. He is the one who calls the church out of the world. He is the one that purchased the church by His blood and she, the church, is His. Not mine. Not yours. And why is this important to this message? Because the primary function of church government is to allow Christ to exercise His headship over the church. So in other words, what we do as a church should be to function so that Christ's headship is exercised over His church. Well, what does that even mean? Well, it should mean that the church is not a pure democracy where every member has a vote. And you're like, what? I'm a little biased against the word vote because it's just a reminder of our American political system where we go to polls and we get to vote our mind and express our opinions by using a ballot box. And I believe that's fine for American government. I don't believe it's fine for how the church is to operate. You say, well, why not? Why, why is that not okay? Because the question for any church should not be, what is the mind of the members? But you know what it should be, right? What is the mind of Christ, who is the Lord over his church? Nowhere do we say, well, I'm in charge. My opinion is the opinion that matters. No. It's Christ's opinion. Now here's the significant part about that question. Do we have the mind of Christ? Written down for us. The answer is yes. We, have, we may have differences on how to interpret or apply the word specifically, but still every single believer is called to place themselves under Jesus Christ as our supreme authority. So what, what we do is we allow Christ to exercise his headship over his church. And what does that result in? It results in an entirely different way of conducting church business. Because if someone looks at the church and they think that this is a democratic organization where every member has a vote, guess what? You are now neck deep into the one thing that I hear most often from people. I hate church politics. That's what people say all the time. I hate church politics. And you know what church politics leads to? It leads to power struggles. And you know what a power struggle leads to? Pastors and church members jockeying for a position to have power based in the church to get things done. i got to have a power base so I can get done what I need to get done. And this person has to have a power base and this person has to have a power base because we need to get stuff done in the church. And the only way we can get stuff done is if we have people on our side that are going to vote for our thing. That's not what we find in Scripture. So what happens? People are trying to manage and manipulate a bunch of self-willed people so that they can get their own wish through the majority rule. And what I'm telling you is not only is it not biblical, but it leads to division in the church and it split, spits in the face of Jesus Christ. 
Because he's head over the church. But we want to say we're head over the church. And unfortunately, if I'm honest, I've practiced this very thing. Things get back to me. Some people gossiping about their pastor. They ask other people how they feel about the pastor. Or how do you feel about the pastor's family? And people start asking, what do you think of this? Or what is your concern? Or what about this? And what about this about the pastor? Do you really think he's a good pastor? Blah, 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 blah. And you know what I immediately do? I think I have a wife and six kids in my house that I have to care for. I can't lose my job. And I get defensive. And I jockey for position. And I say, I got to do something. And it's sinful. But what if the members of the church instead say, I'm going to live in daily submission to the Lord of this church? And what if we seek to obey God's word? And what if instead of asking, what do I think, or what do I feel, or what do you think, or what do you feel? We ask, what does God think of the pastor? What does God think of the man that he's put into this position? What does God think of the man that he's called to be here? That he's given to us as a gift. What does God think? And well, that's great. It's what should be expected. Because you know what we do then? We come together as a church and we actually take care of church business. Instead of being in a power struggle. What if we denied ourselves? What if we reverently sought what the Lord is saying to His church? That's beautiful. That's something entirely different from church politics. So it's not about coming and casting your vote. It's about what is the mind of Christ? And how do I submit to the mind of Christ? And so first, Christ is the head of his church. And now i got to move really fast because it took way too long right there. <laughs> Point number two. Christ implements his headship through church-recognized elders. Remember the sermon in a sentence from the beginning. Christ implements headship over his church through church-recognized elders who shepherd the flock. And so we want to focus on how the implementation of his headship Happens, And I want us to understand four things concerning the church. First, or four things concerning elders. First, the church recognizes elders. Now, I chose my language very carefully here because uh, we're going to look at more of that in just a minute. However, let's look at the first thing about churches, that they recognize their elders. And I want to see what Paul and Barnabas did after they planted these churches that were functioning for a little while. What did Paul and Barnabas do? In Acts chapter 14, verse 23, we read, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church. Now later on, Paul writes to Timothy and Titus. Right? And what the, Timothy and Titus were his representatives. And he gives them qualifications that they should look for in what? Elders. First Timothy 3, 1 through 7. We'll get to that word overseer here in a minute, exactly what it means. But also we have them in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Paul also gives a qualification for deacons. First Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. The deacons were engaged in serving the churches. Now here's what we know. We no longer have apostles or apostolic delegates to appoint uh, to be elders. But you know what we do have? 
We have God's word that we can follow, which clearly lays out the guidelines in those two pastoral letters. Now back to choosing my words, right? Choosing these words carefully. I said the church recognizes elders. I didn't say the church votes for elders. And there's a vast difference. So what are some reasons someone might vote for an elder? Or anyone for that matter. Well, because they like that person personally. Or, or they, they like what they're going to lead and represent. They're going to they're represent my values. We hear that a lot politically, right? They represent my values, so I voted for them. And we do the same thing in church when we vote for someone. And they, 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 might, they may want someone who's going to implement their views on the church. Voting, at least in the realm of politics, is very often a matter of preference. But let me ask you this. Is that the issue in church governance? Your preference? Should we pick people based on preference or should we instead ask, does this person meet the qualifications that are set forward in Scripture? Well, we should ask, does this person meet the biblical qualification? Now, granted, no one perfectly possesses all of the qualifications, not even me. I know that's a shocker, but I don't. But no one should glaringly violate the qualifications either. And so, this, does this man generally match the qualifications in Scripture? That should be the question. Now, next week the message is how to spot an elder, and we will look at the qualifications. But if we ever selected elders in our church, which I pray that one day we do, as that is part of why I'm preaching this message, we should be selecting people based on not preference, but based upon biblical qualifications, right? Instead, we should be affirming elders based on, as far as we know, this man possesses the biblical qualification for an elder. And so maybe you know the man. Maybe you've seen the man at home or, or seen him places where other people have never seen him. And maybe you know how he treats his family and his kids and his wife and, and everybody else. And, and you see that in a good manner. Or maybe you've worked with him. Or maybe you've had a chance to pray with him. Or maybe you've, you've seen his integrity. In different places. And maybe you've seen him deal with people. And you can easily see that he has a shepherd's heart. And perhaps you've seen him take the initiative. To try to help people grow. In their walk with Jesus. And so you affirm. Yes this man is an elder. And he meets the biblical qualifications for an elder. Not. Does he meet my preference? I want to say something here that's important. Because the members of the church. Are responsible. For holding the leaders. The elders accountable in the church. And they're specifically to hold them accountable in two areas. Morally and doctrinally. Doctrinally, this is vital when we're speaking about the truth of the gospel, right? Inspiration and authority of the scripture. The Trinitarian nature of God. The truth of Jesus being truly God and truly man. The substitutionary atonement of Christ. The resurrection of Christ. The ascension of Christ. And his second coming. These truths are essential. They cannot be deviated from. And so members of the church must hold elders accountable to those specific truths. Secondly, suppose an elder is acting morally contrary to the teachings of the scripture. In that case, church members need to talk to that person first privately and then with one or two others. And if there is still no resolution, you go to other elders as leaders of the church. If there is still no repentance, the church, the church as a whole goes just as we're taught in Matthew chapter 18. And they say, listen, we can't, we can't deal with this brother anymore. He's sinning. He's not repentant. We've got to remove him. Now, please notice that these are sin issues. They are not preference issues. So suppose there's a preference issue. What do you do then? You have, you have this preference. I think this color should be blue on this carpet. And I'm not going to get over it. 
Well, you go to the, I don't know who chose this carpet, but you go to the elder that chose the carpet or was part of that. You speak to him about it. And you understand that your opinion is just a preference. And it's not a sin issue that you're addressing. And then you know what you do? You move on. You know why you move on? Because you understand it's a preference. And that that elder has been called to lead. And you're just making nothing over a preference. So what's the implication? Well, the church members actually know the Bible well enough to spot a deviation from the truth of God's word that they know well enough to go, wait, that's not right. That's not what the Bible teaches us. Whether it's morally or doctrinally. And the church members can, can be concerned with moral laxity or doctrinal error. These things creep into the church. If elders are following the Lord, then according to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, they should be obeyed. However, they don't have autocratic authority that they can use the Lord over the church. Instead, they are to be examples of the flock, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3. Secondly, we need to notice this. Elders are men, not women. Elders are men, not women. I know that's really great to say on Mother's Day, but <laughs> it's what the Scripture teaches us. There are no examples of women elders in the New Testament. Now, those people that argue for egalitarianism will say, well, that's just a cultural thing in the church. They didn't want to, they didn't want to offend the male-dominated leadership of the, of the day. We can't ignore Scripture. We know what Paul wrote, and we know the context he wrote it in. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the, of the wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. He then goes on to base his whole teaching on the order of creation where Adam and Eve were to reflect the image of God. In Ephesians chapter 5, he clarifies that there's this hierarchical authority that we see in the Godhead. It's a pattern of hierarchy and authority in the church and in marriage. Now listen closely because so many churches and marriages and people in general get this so wrong. Being the head does not in any way imply or mean that abusive authority is to be tolerated. Nowhere do we find that in Scripture. Nor does it imply or mean that men are somehow superior to women. You don't walk in the door, men, and have your wife rise up and call you blessed or king or whatever. What it does imply and suggest is that the church and the home is to be a reflection of the Godhead, even though Christ is completely equal to God. And we know from Scripture that he willingly submitted to the Father to carry out the divine plan of the crucifixion. 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12 says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. What happens is people say, well, that can't be true. We've got to find a solution for that. So again, people say, well, that's culturally conditioned. Yet again, Paul goes on to base his instruction. On the order of creation, the fact that women was deceived at the fall. And what did Adam do? Well, he went right along with it. And the reason given are historical reasons. They're not culturally relative reasons. Lastly, the qualifications listed for elder in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, and Titus 1, 5 through 7, assume that all elders are men. Paul uses masculine pronouns the entire time. Husband of one wife, manager of their household well. I believe Titus 2 reveals to us that women can serve even on staff at a church, but they can teach other women, but they are not to be elders in the church. Thirdly, notice, elders are spiritually mature. Man, I'm running out of time. We know this because we, are, we have these qualifications in terms. 
You should describe the office of elder. The Bible doesn't give us an age requirement for eldership, right? The age can be any age. So a congregation that's relatively younger, they could have young elders. A congregation that's relatively older, they could have older elders. We know that Paul told uh, Timothy not to allow people to look down upon his youth, youthfulness, but let's remember Timothy was about in his 30s at the time. Told him to be an example of the flock and speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. These are marks of maturity. We have this term. I want to go over some terms. We have elder, which I just talked about. We have overseer, also translated bishops. This term is used interchangeably with elders. It's a, it's a reference to the nature of the work because they're to superintend or to watch over and guard the local church. And overseer is to be spiritually mature, to discern spiritual dangers, to protect against them and guide the flock into spiritual growth. We have another term that's used. pastor or shepherd. It's used only once in noun form for church leaders in Ephesus or Ephesians 4.11. The verb form is used all through Scripture. Obviously, this looks at the work of an elder using the analogy of a shepherd and his sheep. And when we look at Scripture, we see that Jesus is called the shepherd, the pastor, that's the same word, and the guardian, overseer of our souls in 1 Peter 2.24. He is also the chief shepherd. Human pastors serve under the chief shepherd as under shepherds of his flock. And they will give an account to him. 1 Peter 5.4, Hebrews 13.17. There's one final term that I want to look at. There's actually two here, but in the Greek. Prohestemai, which is to stand before or first. It means to lead with authority or to be in charge of. 1 Thessalonians 5.12, 1 Timothy 3.4, 1 Timothy 5.12, 1 Timothy 5.17, Romans 12.8. Same word. There's another word in the Greek. Hehomai which means to lead or to rule. It's where we get our word hegemony. And it's used in Hebrews 13.7, Hebrews 13.17, Hebrews 13.24, Luke 22.56. All these words involve authority. But you know what authority requires? Servanthood. Now at the very least, all these terms imply a level of spiritual maturity that's spelled out in the qualifications of an elder. Fourthly, notice this. Elders are plurality. Whenever Scripture speaks of a of a single local church, the term elder is in plural every single time. It is possible that one elder gave oversight to a number of individual house churches. It's possible that, that one elder, especially uh, the one that was preaching, the preaching elder support, that was a supported elder, was looked at as a leader among the elders, kind of like Peter was among the apostles, James was among the other elders in Jerusalem. Proverbs 11.14 tells us that there is wisdom in a multitude of counselors. There's also wisdom in sharing responsibility as well as authority in a church so that no single person can dominate without accountability. This is why a plurality of elders is needed. There was a one-man ruler in the New Testament. His name was Diotrephes. The Apostle John condemned him because he, was, he liked to put himself first, it said. And he didn't acknowledge their authority. And so John said this, So if I come, I will bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers, and also stops those who want to, and puts them out of the church. I have a saying that I sometimes say, and I've said it to others, and it's don't be a diatrophies. So when it comes to major decisions, elders should always seek to come to a consensus if they're divided, then they need to wait on the Lord and seek the mind of Christ and His will before they ever proceed. As we look at the New Testament, we notice that there's no instruction on the number of elders. We don't say, well, you need to have 12 elders. You need to have 15. We don't see that. 
It's best determined by the number of qualified men in a church and the need for shepherding within the church. So if you have large church, you have more elders. If you have small church, you have less elders. We also do not have any instruction of elders serving a term. However, that's probably not a bad idea because it's hard to shepherd a church. And he could take time off. Elderships a demanding ministry. Especially for those that work in other vocations. Family pressures happen all the time. They change. Personally, I believe that it should be the same for deacons as well as elders. Where they can renew their, their term with a congregational blessing. Or if they need a break, they can say, I need a break. Okay. Okay, I'm running out of time. Quickly. What do elders do? I've got to do these fast. What do elders do? We're going to talk about elders. What do they do? That should be the question. This book tells you what they do. I'm only going to give you three things. What do elders do? First, they meet by example. You might remember those verses from 1 Peter. When we went through 1 Peter, when it preached our series through 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Jesus Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you do, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And so Peter is exhorting his fellow elders. But look at what he says. He says, elders have charge over the flock. It's just, it's, it's just right there in the text. It, just, it says, here I am. This is what elders are. They have charge over the flock, over those in your charge. They're to exercise oversight, and they're to do so willingly and eagerly. Well, how are they to do this? By being examples to the flock. This is precisely what Christ modeled for us. On the very night that he, his disciples uh, were going to betray him, he washes their feet. He gave instructions that the leader must be a servant. What Jesus modeled for us is what we're to do. We want, if we want to lead, we serve. Our lives are to be a demonstration of the servant leadership of our great shepherd. Secondly, we teach God's word. Elders teach God's word. We only have one non-character qualification for elders. And that is they're able to teach. Now, I don't know that it necessarily means that they have to be able to preach a sermon. However, I believe that's a great benefit to have elders who can preach and probably should be, um, uh, should be pursued. Those that We should pursue those that can preach. They must at least be able to sit down and lead a younger believer in a Bible study through Scripture. Titus tells us this. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word that's taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who are contradicting. The church should support some elders. So as Paul puts it, they can work hard at preaching and teaching. Notice how this assumes that God's word is our only standard for faith and practice. Lastly, the shepherd God's flock. The elders have the job of oversight, which does require some administration, some oversight of the church's finances. However, the main job of an elder is to shepherd the flock. Acts 20, 28, 1 Peter 5, 2. The word shepherd is the same as the word pastor. One man can't pastor a large church in any way that's beneficial, so the elders help share the load. One might ask, what does pastoring look like? Well, it involves doing what a shepherd does for a sheep. The shepherd knows the sheep. The shepherd leads the sheep. The shepherd feeds the sheep. The shepherd guides the sheep to reach pastures of God's word. 
The shepherd guards the sheep against fierce wolves. The shepherd goes out and he finds a strange sheep and he helps them with their wounds and he restores them to the Lord. The shepherd has to correct the erring and rebellious sheep. And finally, the shepherd equips the flock for ministry so that they can serve the Lord in the area that they're gifted. So let's bring this message to its conclusion. Who's actually in charge of the church? Jesus Christ. How does he implement his headship? Well, according to Scripture, through church-recognized elders who are spiritually mature through their example and their servanthood as they shepherd his flock. Does having elders mean a church is no longer congregational? No. Otherwise, having a pastor would mean a church is no longer congregational. Are elders biblical? Yes. Are they Baptist? I hope so. Here's what I wonder. We say, is, we say Jesus is in charge of the church. But is he in control of your life? Are you surrendered to his will? Do you desire to follow him? Have you trusted him as your savior? You can do that today. So how do I do that? You can pray something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you are God's son. That you forgive me of my sins. I know I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me. I turn from my sin. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. I want to live for you the rest of my life. It's not magic. Christ saves you if you call out to him. It's saying, God, I trust in you. Jesus, I trust in you to save me. If you said a prayer or something like that, you want to know more about it, I'd love to follow up with you. You can text the word faith to 309 328 3488 309-328-3488 you can do that from your pew if you want to one final note on eldership I want to share with you this morning 1 Timothy 3.1 says this saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer he desires a noble task that word aspire means to reach for it's not talking about a power grab or wanting more power or wanting more status or I need to be I need to be in power but it's reaching towards spiritual maturity so that you can serve the chief shepherd by helping shepherd his flock. What I am saying is that some men should have a God-given desire to be an elder. And if you want to get there, it means that you grow in godliness and you look at these qualifications that we're going to look at in depth next week and you daily spend time in your word and spend time in prayer. It means that you shepherd your own family and that you set an example by being a servant leader in your home and in the church. It means that you serve God's people by building relationships with other people in the church with the goal that you will see them become more mature in their faith. Let me ask you, men, who are you investing in? That's a serious... Who are you investing in? Because that's one of the ways that we know someone's qualified to be an elder. What I'm saying is the church does not say, well, we need an elder so that they can serve. But instead, the church recognized elders by looking at the men in the church that are godly examples and doing the work that needs to be done. They're already doing the work of elders. And what I am saying is we need men to meet the qualifications and that have a desire to do the work of oversight of his flock. What I'm saying is you cannot grow without it. And the same is true of being a deacon. 
There's plenty of deacons in this church that aren't deacon in name. But I know some of you aspire to be the, uh, in the office of elder because I've spoken with you. Not for power. But you want to help oversee and be an elder of the flock. Has God spoken to you this morning through His Word? If so, I'd invite you to respond. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know if it looks like you're coming down an aisle. I don't know if it looks like you're talking to me later. I don't know. But I pray God's word went forth and spoke to your heart this morning. Let's close with prayer. Father, I thank you for this word. But sometimes I reflect on my own life. We all know I'm not perfect. I'm for sure not a perfect pastor. I've failed in many ways. Many areas. But Lord, you're a perfect God who sent a perfect Savior. called me to this church as an imperfect pastor to lead a bunch of imperfect people. Lord, may we surrender our will to your will. May we not ask what does this say or that say, but what does your word say? May we not judge people based upon what we think is right, or what we think is appropriate, what we think is our best practice. How do you see them? How do you look at them? What do you want done? How do you want to lead your church? What does your word say? These are the questions we should ask. Not what do I want? Because what I want is self-centered, self-seeking, self-serving. Oh God, that you would break self in all of us. Tear our hearts apart so we realize we have nothing but you. Your word, you wrote to us. We'd be obedient to the Lord. And God, I don't know how you've spoken this morning through this message. I just know this is the word that you gave to me. And I trust that it, you used it for your purpose to accomplish what you want to accomplish. Because you're perfect. And everything you do is perfect. May we be surrendered to you. May we lay our will down this morning and surrender to your will. And if you've spoken to us, may we respond in whatever way that looks like. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. As we sing, you're going to come this morning.